The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we talk about politics, um, although we seem to be talking about politics almost all week. But this time we really focus on it. We're really lucky to be able to do so with two of our friends who you will remember because we used to have these conversations among us so frequently. One is Tara McGowan. She's the founder and CEO of Good Information, Inc. and publisher for Courier Newsroom. How are you, Tara? Hi, David. I'm well. I'm happy to be back. Well, it's really good to see you. Yeah, no, it's been too long. And the other is Simon Rosenberg, political strategist, commentator, could be found on his Substack, Hopium Chronicles. Remember, Tara, I think we set him off on the road to Hopium Chronicles a long time ago. We can take a little bit of credit, (laughs) sure. I'll be happy to give you both credit. I'm happy to give you both credit. Uh, I'm great, David. It's always good to be with the two of you. Um, Well, uh, you know, I thought, you know, periodically as we get closer and closer to next year's election, we should be talking. Uh, Terry, you've been out there founding outposts of Courier Newsroom across America. Um, Presumably that means you go out there into America. Uh, Simon and I, you know, we're Beltway denizens. We know what people talk about inside the Beltway. Do, do people outside the belt, are they like focused on the election? Is that like an issue or, you know, are they like, you know, concerned about the dog catcher, the job, those kind of things? What's on their mind? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I wish that I spent more time in my work travel with uh, real people, but I spent a lot of time with folks like us that are trying to save <laughs> not, the ship strategically. Not real but people. I do, yeah. But I do live in Rhode Island amongst a lot of real people. It's why I don't live in DC any longer. And no, folks are not thinking about the election or talking about it or tuning into the GOP primary. I didn't even watch it last night. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. But um, uh, no, I, I mean, I think it's a little early. I mean, I'm a little bit more frustrated that more folks that are engaged and involved, and especially in the funding side of democracy work, are um, are still feeling fatigued and a lot of malaise. And so, a lot of what I'm doing and thinking about is is how do we how do we shake people up and and get them 
get them as engaged as we all are. And as I know your, your readers are and what you're doing every day, Simon, um, it's so important because it's, uh, it's, it's here. The election is here and, um, and we have to get folks, uh, to get engaged and roll up their sleeves and start doing the hard work that's going to get, uh, president Biden and vice president Harris over the finish line. Uh, yeah, well, I, 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 I certainly can't disagree with any of that. Simon, you know, here in Washington, this is all they talk about all day long, but the people are immersed in, oh, the government's going to shut down and that's what it'll mean for this program. And, um, you know, a lot of very inside the beltway things. I watched Fox News last night. I, and I have to tell you, it was the longest period of time I have ever spent watching Fox um, because I watched that debate and I truly had the feeling as though I'd been through the looking glass to another planet. They, they described an America that's in huge distress everywhere. The economy's in huge distress. Immigrants are pouring across our border. We need to invade Mexico, which seems to be a growing, growing thing with them. It's like, let's go to war with Mexico. Um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Did you watch it? And is that, you know, a real America out there or is that just made for television? I didn't watch the anything last night in the debate. I went out to dinner with my son, which was actually really fun. <clears throat> He's turning 21 this week. So the, the celebration has begun. Um, listen, I think, I think that, you know, uh, Greg Sargent, uh, calls it Foxlandia, right? This imaginary world that Fox has invented that, you know, Democrats are socialists. I mean, they've had to invent a different Demo- a different party because they can't run and beat the Democratic Party. So they've had to invent this other party and, and this other world, this hellscape that they, they actually use that term a lot, <laughs> hellscape. Um, and it's something, David, that you and Tara and I spent a lot of time talking about a year ago which is that, to me, one of the central strategies of MAGA and their allies is to pump negative sentiment into our discourse every day and to make us feel bad about our democracy, our country, our leaders, our institutions, each other, everything. And the predicate to create, to letting radical and extremist politics to prevail, it needs a narrative of failure. It needs a narrative and a story that things are the current order is collapsing and is not succeeding and therefore something new and more extreme and radical is required. And so to me, when I'm worried about all this and what Trump's central job has been in many ways since he started in 2015 has been to convince us that America is less than what it really is and, and that we're not America the successful or America the fallen. And the data and just, you know, objective reality shows that that isn't true. I mean, Joe Biden's been a good president. The country's better off. The Democratic Party, our party, is strong, stronger than it's perhaps been in, in decades. You know, where our recovery from the COVID is stronger than any other G7 nation in the world. You know, we're doing really well in America. I mean, there's a lot of work to do, right? Things aren't perfect. But this hellscape and the, and the diminution of our project, the American project, is their central objective. And it's something we all have to become more conscious of. And it's why the work that we do here and Tara's amazing work she does all over the country is so vital. Because I think America, we part of our job is to give permission structure to Americans to love their country again, I think, as part of our collective job. 
And um, and the good news is that facts and truth are on our side on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, Tara, you know, this is the question that really sort of weighs on me. And it may be, you know, I mean, you know, when Simon uh, quotes, as he, as he often does, not just polling data, but how we do at the polls, we find ourselves at a moment in America in which the country is doing extremely well economically, did recover faster than any other country from COVID, is leading the way on important kinds of innovation, does have a government that is uh, helping uh, businesses create jobs faster than at any time in the past 50 years, does have low unemployment, does have a real commitment to investing in innovation, infrastructure, et cetera, does have enemies around the world who are faltering for one reason or another, whether it's the Chinese economy, the Russians in Ukraine, um, et cetera, does have stronger alliances than we've, than we've had probably since the end of World War II. Things are great. You know, you would think, I mean, life's difficult. You would think that somehow this message that things are great would resonate and people would be happy with it? Or is it that life is hard for the average person and they're willing to buy into the other thing? I mean, you, you're in the business of trying to uh, you know, present information at the local level. Aren't people willing to acknowledge at the local level that they're doing pretty well? No, I don't think so, David. I think I think one of the greater challenges before us is that um, there is a crisis of trust, right? There is a historic low level of trust in government institutions and the media among Americans and people around the world today. And a lot of people don't feel like either party has done a good job of representing them or their interests. And so they are more likely to believe false narratives that, that, uh, that blame, um, Democrats who are currently in power and in the White House for things, um, to trigger folks' emotions. That's why, you know, they talk about a very different America than the one we live in on the debate stage for the GOP primary. Um, but it works with certain people who, who really don't trust politics and politicians. And we have a lot of work to do that, frankly, Democrats and the Democratic Party cannot take on the task alone to be able to really educate Americans about the difference in the values and the contrast in the parties, and frankly, get them to engage and participate um, as much as they have in the past elections because of the stakes and on the decisions that will impact their lives. And the thing that has been most mobilizing for folks that are not people who vote every election, those are not the folks that win elections, right? It's the people who show up who don't ordinarily show up that make the difference in competitive races. And what has been mobilizing most of those Americans over the past four years and a few election cycles is a referendum on the overstepping and the extremism of Trump and Republicans. Nobody wants their rights taken away. They are more likely to be mobilized to protect rights that they have, like right to abortion 
or other rights than they are about going to the ballot to support the continuation of slow, iterative progress that they might not feel in a very big way in their own pocketbooks or their own homes or communities. And so I, I, I think that it's incredibly important to tell the factual story of all the good this administration and Democrats in Washington have done for Americans, all of the, the unprecedented investments in infrastructure and action on climate change and job creation. It's so important to tell that story, but ultimately that's not what's going to turn the folks out to vote who don't engage regularly in the process. It really is going to be keeping them hyper aware of the extremism and the radical policies and agenda that Republicans in Washington and in state houses across this country are advancing. And that is what is visceral for folks. And I think that is what we need to be doing more of is keeping those issues, those policies, those bills, those quote unquote leaders on the other side front and center for folks so they know what they are voting against and what they are protecting in order for us to be able to have the ability to start to really redefine for folks what Democrats stand for, the values that they stand for and and what they fight for. If you're like me, you're probably more than a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does, and how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Host Simone Leeper speaks with experts from across the political spectrum and takes a deep dive into the forces fueling our elections, not just in our nation's capital, but at all levels of government. Democracy Decoded will help you make sense of how we currently elect our leaders and hold them accountable, and how we can better ensure that all citizens have the right to have their voices heard. Clearly, these are exactly the issues we need to be discussing right now, given what is happening all around us. Tune in to learn more about how we can use innovative ideas to build a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tara saying makes a lot of sense, Simon. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot of the time is people, well, you know, the Democrats, they don't really know how to do this stuff. And the Biden administration is not really good at this stuff. And, um, you know, I would say the counter argument is um, that, you know, some recent polls show the message is getting through that things are doing pretty well. That um, on the Democratic side of the ledger, there's almost unanimity that things are going pretty well and the president's doing a good job. Um, the president's got the cabinet out there talking about accomplishments, but also, you know, as if taking Tara's uh, point too hard, um, you know, you've got the vice president out there on a fighting for our freedoms tour, which by the way, is doing extremely well. It's not getting a ton of coverage, but she is getting terrific audiences, Gen Z audiences, very, very, you know, tuned up around these issues. The president's giving a speech on democracy as part of a series of speeches on democracy, emphasizing the threats. 
And you could hardly ask for more cooperation from Donald Trump um, when it comes to, or frankly, the MAGA Republicans on the Hill, when it comes to sending the message that there are threats out there. Um, so do you buy the argument that, you know, I mean, we can always do better, but do you buy the argument that the the, the White House, the Democrats don't get it or, or do they actually? You know, I, I think... I really like what Tara said in the way that she said it about the emotional core of our politics. I mean, there's no question that the most powerful force in our last three elections has been fear and opposition to MAGA. There's no question about that. It's the the thing that's driving our politics. It's driving the democratic grassroots. I mean, we have more people giving money and volunteering in elections than we've ever had. Our campaigns are bigger than they've ever been. And that's because there is this powerful sense that you know, if we don't do well in elections, that our democracy could slip away. And, and I speak to groups all the time. I mean, I do two or three talks a week. And there's no question that the, the beating heart, the emotional core of the citizen activism, the explosion of citizen activism, Heather Cox Richardson calls an awakening in America, is being driven by this sense that, that Tara said. And I think she's right about it. But I think we also have to, as part of institution trust building that she mentioned, we have to make the case that government can work, that government can make people's lives better, that we set out to do things like to get to the other side of COVID. And we've done that. And we've been able to improve the economy and make needed investments. It may not be that those arguments are as successful as we want them to be over the next 14 months. But these are arguments that have to be made. And because it's part of getting to the other side of what Tara said at the very beginning, which is this loss of trust and faith and this ability to easily dismiss any kind of institutional, any kind of American institution as being illegitimate or faded or fallen or whatever the language is you want to be. And I think this, I, this thing we're going through, which is this, we have to do both. We have to remind everybody about the threat they are. Although I'll tell you, voters in the battleground know this because we've litigated this in three consecutive elections. And it's one of the reasons that we did so well in the last election. I mean, we, in seven battleground states, we actually gained ground over 2020 in Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Minnesota, Michigan, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania. And so voters in the battleground where the election is going to be decided, they have been arguing and debating all of this and they're on our side on this. But I do think that as I project forward as a strategist, I, I think that we, Joe Biden is a really good re-election argument. He's been a good president. I feel really good about that. But imagine trying to sell Donald Trump next year. I mean, just given what he's going to be going through legally, given that is the threats that he's made to Mark General Milley and others seem, even for him, sort of over the top and wild and dangerous. They are, we are going to have more ammunition to define them as being out of the mainstream and dangerous and extreme than we even had in 2022 and 2020. And so I'm just very confident that we have the tools to have a very successful election next year. We got a lot of work to do. We got to put our heads down and get it done because if we fail, right, you know, this could be the last free and open election we have in America for a very long time. And so, you know, all hands on deck. And the good news is, David, as you pointed out, this year, when elections have happened, when people have had to vote, we just keep winning. Just like in 2022, we just keep winning. I mean, we, been winning elections all over the country, you know, from Colorado Springs to Jacksonville to Wisconsin. We had that enormous performance in the Ohio ballot initiative. And for your listeners, 
the next big one is Virginia. I mean, we we need, everyone's got to show up in Virginia. This is a big one. We just had a poll yesterday showing us up three points there. It's very encouraging, but a lot of undecided. So there's a lot of work to do there. I just want to chime in quickly on your question to David, and I want to reinforce what Simon said about we have to do both. But specifically to your question about do we think the White House and Democrats get it? I very much actually do. I think we've seen a lot of um, uh, evolution, if you will, on the White House's communication strategy. And people want to see a fighter. They want to know that people have their back. I think that's actually what makes Trump very successful with his base, is people really feel like he's fighting for them, even though he's lying through his teeth to them. They really feel like they have an advocate in him. And I think President Biden, the strategy that the team deployed to put him on the picket lines yesterday at the UAW strike in Michigan, we had a reporter on the ground who was covering it as well, was brilliant. Because it's better than just talking about job numbers and things like this. He's out there fighting for workers. That from an attention perspective, from a visual perspective, that's the kind of way that you need to engage in storytelling right now. And I think similarly with President Biden's speech today in Arizona, strategically placed by the John McCain um, uh, Institute there uh, in Arizona and talking about the grave threat that extremism is posing and, and stepping outside of sort of much more of a partisan box, even if that's how the media ends up interpreting it. I think that's really powerful because he is a powerful communicator that no one in this country believes is a bad guy at all. People do trust Joe Biden. The worst thing most people can say about him is that he's old. Guess what? So is Trump. So using him very strategically on this messaging and putting him strategically into these moments and opportunities to really demonstrate whose back he has, who he represents, I think is really powerful. And the fact that they're, you know, engaging in interviews with newsrooms that can put him on TikTok like we do and other things is also showing that they're not just thinking about um, communicating to the very small educated audience and they are trying to really expand and diversify. Their David, language. can I just jump in real quick? Is that... Um since I didn't respond uh, to your question, I think, and we've discussed this before, I think the other thing that I've come to believe um, by spending so much time with regular Americans in the last year and a half who love their country and are fighting to make sure their democracy and freedoms don't slip away, is that I think regular people have a big role to play in this. I think it's not just about what Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to do, and Tara did a great job there. But it's also about we need millions of Americans, not just working on campaigns, but we need to get involved in the daily discourse. We have to recognize that we have more agency and power to influence the daily conversation than we all understand. I mean, Tucker Carlson had three million viewers and he was the most powerful communicate, you know, commentator in American politics. Imagine if one to two million Democrats every day reach 10 other people, you know, with positive messages about America, about the Democratic Party, about Joe Biden. That's 10, 20 million people. That's way more than what Tucker Carlson reached. And I think that we have to, to me, reinvent the war room and think of the war room not as 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls and producing TikTok videos, but we need to think of the war room as, you know, a million, two million proud patriots getting up every day, trying to put positive sentiment into our discourse I think we have to unleash the American people here a little bit and give them permission structure to, because this is part of, I think, how we ultimately really route MAGA, not just defeat MAGA, but route them. The American people are leading this grassroots revolution or rebellion against MAGA. 
But we have this other piece of it that I think we need to do, which is to encourage them to become participants in this daily uh, information war that we're all part of. And I've been very encouraged by the conversations I've been having with people all across the country about this and this idea that, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. I want to be more involved in in the daily debate. They listen to podcasts like this. They read Tara's you know, amazing Courier Newsroom publications. They read my Substack. But there is an awakening happening with people, and it's super encouraging to me. And I think when we come out the other side of MAGA, you know, we're going to have a, a very strong and reinvigorated democracy in America. Yeah, I, by the way, would call what you described, which is that everybody has a platform today. I would call it the McGowan Doctrine, because uh, that came out of, and for me, out of the many conversations we had last year, uh, and that there, this is a technologically different landscape, and that everybody has the ability not only to offer their voice, but to amplify it in ways, as Simon just described, that can have huge impact, and that even if you only reach a few people, the cumulative effect can be gigantic. That's the network effect, right? That's um, what we've got going for us. But let me ask you a kind of a counterintuitive question here, because frankly, it's the one that worries me, because I don't think it gets discussed enough. It's easy to see how you beat Donald Trump. He's the worst person in the world. I mean, he is the worst person in the world. Um, he was a terrible president. Uh, he is, you know, a serial criminal. He's going to be on trial for the whole campaign. Um, he is, he doesn't like pets. I mean, there's nothing about Donald Trump that is redeeming, right? That's why I don't, I think there's a better chance than most people do that he was not the candidate. How, what would your advice be to the Republican Party to win and do better next time? You know, like, what do they have to do? Well, but I, we have to think about that. I think we have to think about, you know, so they've got people sitting in a room saying, how do we win this? And, you know, there's some guy in Wall Street going, well, if we get Glenn Youngkin and he wears the right kind of fluffy vest and he goes out there and he says things in a certain kind of a way, then we can, you know, get this many people in Georgia and that many people in Arizona and then no labels can carve off this many people here and this many people there. And we see a path to victory. What are they thinking? I mean, you don't have to give them advice, but what do you think they think is the way to make this work, Tara? I'm not sure, David, that there is a group of people having those conversations, to be honest. Um, I, I really, I don't know that there is. I mean, I, I mentioned before, I didn't watch the debate last night, but I did read um, my dear friend Dan Pfeiffer's newsletter this morning about it because he he took one for the team and did watch it. And I and I watched some of the clips and, and his point was like, they're all being lazy. They're not running. They're either running for vice president for Trump, or they're trying to build a foundational list and base and name ID to run in 2028. And really, no one is seriously actually taking it to Trump. I used to think, and we talked about this, I think, uh, sometimes last year, that DeSantis had the best um, opportunity. He had a war chest. He had this record to run on in Florida. 
He has stepped on his own feet over and over again. He hasn't made any attention-worthy news for the base. He hasn't challenged Trump in significant ways. And I kind of think they've all thrown in the towel and just resigned themselves to the fact that Trump is the nominee. And 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 that is unfortunate because they really could have made this more competitive and they still could. There's some time left, but Trump still leads over 30 points in New Hampshire and Iowa. And that's the other thing. If somebody wants to win, they just have to win in a few of these early states to be able to build a media narrative and momentum to carry them forward to really to really challenging him. And I don't think any of the candidates on the right are taking that seriously. I really don't. I think that um, we've all sort of resigned ourselves to the fact that Trump is going to be the nominee for better and for worse. And I do think he's easy to beat if every person who turned out in 2020 turns out again. If we have fatigue and we have low energy on our side because we have the same candidate, we don't have the same conditions as 2020. We had an urgent, urgent crisis and need to get that man out of the White House. That created much more coalition building, much more energy. We don't have that now. We have a old candidate and an unpopular vice president who is not unpopular, by the way, among young people, which is going to matter significantly in driving turnout and enthusiasm in the election. Um, but it's it's different. I think that 2024 is much, much harder for Democrats to win, frankly, in certain ways than 2020. And we won in 2020 by razor thin margins. So it really is going to be about how many people can we get engaged and enraged and ready to be able to do the work and, and, and do everything that Simon mentioned about talking about the good and doing both every day. But it will only be easy to win if we get everybody to yeah, engage. I mean, two points on that, David, is it one is so the good news is that in this cycle, in the last cycle, when Joe Biden was not on the ballot, Democrats are showing up and and are you know voting and and we're winning elections that nobody thought we could win and the, and they're at least for now Tara right that we should feel like the conditions for us to have the election we want to have are to in my view more likely than not to be the case but the thing the admonition you're raising is is serious and real and we have to take it seriously but i do think there is this kind of sense of urgency in Democratic voters when voting happens, not necessarily in a poll, but in, in when voting has been happening all across the country. We've had a great year and, and, and frankly, a phenomenal year uh, in our elections this year. And it's very encouraging for next year. But David, here's my, I, I often talk to my audience about people spend too much time being worried and concerned about things. And we're, you know, we're, we externalize our anxiety as Democrats, you know, way too much in, in many ways. But the thing that I, th I think that if you look at the Republican Party right now as a strategist, McConnell is old and is passing the baton and it's been stumbling and difficult to watch. It doesn't really have a, a, an obvious successor. McCarthy is the weakest speaker in American history. John Roberts has corrupted the Supreme Court in ways that have done enormous damage to the, our democracy and to the rule of law in ways that we're going to be dealing with for decades, potentially. Donald Trump is the worst human, as you pointed out, in human in American history. And then the next guys that we saw last night are historically terrible, right? I mean, these are really bad candidates. They're not good politicians. Many of them are loony, right? And not incapable. So if you're a strategist on the Republican side, it's bleak. It's really bleak, right? In terms of, you know, demography is working against you, all the things that are happening. And it's why I think they've got one, I'm worried, I guess, or 
concerned about one sort of Hail Mary, which is that Youngkin wins the Virginia races and then he becomes Trump's VP. He doesn't replace Trump. He becomes the vice president. And so he creates permission structure for moderate Republicans who have lost faith in the Republican Party can say, hey, he's on the ticket. I'm going to stick with them. He also becomes a way station for all the wealthy donors to be able to trust that their money is going to be well spent because he's a peer, right? He's a very wealthy man himself. And I think they've got one play here. And to me, because I don't know that anyone else adds any value to Trump as a VP. I don't think he's going to pick a woman. I don't think there's any kind of demographic play that will be meaningful, which is why we have to win in Virginia in November. I mean, this is a must-win race for the 2024 election, in my view, um, because we have to make it much more difficult. I mean, we have to bloody him, right? We have to bloody and bludgeon Youngkin in the next uh, in this election to make that scenario less likely to happen. And that's so that's my worry, fear, David. Well, it's a, it sounds like a, a very reasonable fear to me. Uh, this is the moment where we say to everybody out there listening that if you are a member, you'll get to listen to the next 15 or so minutes of this podcast. If you're not a member, unfortunately, you won't um, uh, because it's the members only section. So if you're not a member, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, pay $5 a month. We have lots of podcasts. We are about to launch lots more podcasts. That means you'll get bonus content in all of them, which will be lots and lots of bonus content for very little money. And you help support us and conversations like this. So we encourage you to do that. For now, if you're not continuing on with us, thanks very much. And we'll see you again soon. And for those of you who are members, stand by.